Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the 28th of May, 2013, and our special guests are Doug Lamoth and Dan Willingham. Welcome to both of you. Thanks so much, Steve. Doug, did I say your last name correctly? You nailed it. I'm glad. Hey, so I titled this session uh, Education Success and What Really Works. Of course, hindsight is 2020. I should have called it Education Research and What Really Works. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to a, a really fun conversation. It, um, the Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Uh, in addition, I hold a number of virtual conferences throughout the year. The recordings are up for the School Leadership Summit, which took place in March. That was just a, a lot of fun. We've got uh, ISTE Unplugged coming up at the ISTE conference. And then in September, the STEMX conference, sponsored by Hewlett-Packard. In October, the Library 2.013, or Future of Libraries conference, sponsored by San Jose State University. And then in November, our big, terrific global education conference, five days, 24 hours a day. Sure hope you can join us. These are all free events. More information is at web20labs.com. Coming up on the future of education, on June 6th, Ben Rimes is going to talk to us about virtual book clubs. On the 12th, Larry Ferlotz won his new book, Self-Driven Learning. On July 2nd, Matt Hearn talks to us about de-schooling, Will Richardson on Y School, and then Don Winkle on student entrepreneurship and the real flipped learning. Uh, others getting scheduled, but lots of fun coming up. Maybe a little bit slower in the summer, um, but um, hopefully there's something up on the site. Already recorded, if you find yourself missing the sessions, Peter Gray talked to us about, um, uh, let's see, it wasn't Leave to Learn. That was um, Elliot Washer and Charles. It was Free to Learn on his book, Free to Learn. Fascinating book. John Hunter before that on World Peace Project, um, Andrea Schleicher on the PISA exam. Anyway, lots up there. Close to 400 sessions by now. Feel free to, to download those and listen to them. This is a chance for those of you in the live audience to indicate where you're participating from. Look for the star to the left of the map. You click on that. You have to click on it twice to get that star to come up, and then go ahead and click on the map. Those of us who are in the United States are struggling to get caught up from a three-day weekend. Feel free to put your location, the time, the temperature in the chat. It's fun to see where people are from. And given that we have two guests in it, I'm going to kind of move forward quickly here. We'll lose the map, but you can keep putting your notes in the chat just because there's an abundance of material to cover, and I'm looking forward to doing so. So, Doug and Dan, is there something more that ties the two of you together than just a good publicist at the publishing <laughs> company? <laughs> have you actually worked together? We have not worked together yet. We've, we've certainly communicated with one another. And uh, I, I, I won't speak for Doug, but one, one thing that ties me to him is that I'm an admirer of his writing. and. Uh, admire his uh, thoughtfulness and uh, sort of grounded approach to very difficult problems in education. Uh, and uh, similarly, I'm a, uh, I've been a reader of Dan Willingham's for a long time and uh, admire his work immensely and uh, aspire, to <laughs> aspire to write something that's uh, close to as useful at some point. 
So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to direct questions to each of you, but uh, I'll enjoy this if it becomes a conversation between the two of you as well. So I'll direct a question to just one to, of you. So you know, I'm going to send all the hard questions to Dan. So. <laughs> <laughs> hard questions? What makes you think they'll be hard questions? Oh, I know better. So the goal here is to allow each of you to tell your stories, but we will drill down in a couple of places. If I ask a question of one of you and the other wants to answer, please feel free to just jump in. And if I've already started talking or there's a little bit of overlap, my default action will be I will stop talking and let you uh, move forward. Okay, so at core, these books are about what works versus what we have thought or have been told what works. And maybe, Dan, in your case, what we've been influenced to think works. Um, is that a fair assessment, Dan, do you think, of, of how these two books come together? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's fair. I would, uh, in a sense, one can you trust the experts is is sort of a meta uh, meta book uh, on that subject because it's it's not really about what works. It's more an attempt to um, give people the tools to determine for themselves what is likely to work, or even even better put. Um, when there's evidence that something actually works. Uh, we're always told that everything is research-based, uh, and most of the time that's not true. Uh, but most of the people who are interested in education issues are not trained as researchers, and so it's uh, harder than it might first appear to really you know, size up a claim. Uh, because the people who are selling you things, they're they're not stupid. I mean, they're, they're pretty clever uh, frequently at dissembling and making it seem that something is research-based when, in fact, the, the research basis is, is pretty frail. Um, so that's what one, one Can You Trust the Experts is about, is, is trying to sort of arm the reader with some strategies to uh, uh, see through these claims. So, Doug, I'll come to you in a second if it's OK. Oh, go ahead. Okay, I'll wait. Well, I'll come to you in a second. Um, but Dan, I want to ask a question there specifically because it feels as though the book describes both kind of cognitive traps or tendencies that we have, but also the ways in which those are sometimes consciously manipulated by others. Um, to, to how are those two things balanced? We obviously have some tendencies to, to believe things in certain kinds of ways, and those are sometimes abused. When you look at educational research or practice, how often do you feel like that's a, a, a trap we've fallen into and how often do you feel like it's purposefully being misrepresented? Uh, I think it's very frequently purposefully misrepresented. Um, one in particular that comes to mind that, that, that I think is the most common is uh, appeal to authority. In other words, we are asked to uh, believe a claim because someone who appears to be in a position of authority makes that claim. Uh, so in education, um, authority is, is actually usually tightly associated with education itself, right? So having an advanced degree, maybe being affiliated with a university, um, things like having published books, having speaking engagements, having been on television, all of these kinds of things are, are trotted out in front of us um, about the person making the pitch. Uh, and this is clearly designed to make us think, well, other people think that this person is smart, think that this person is accomplished, so probably, you know, probably they're on to something. Uh, 
Um, and I think I think that's quite conscious that that people uh, put this this information out there for us to be impressed by. Um, and in fact, it, it doesn't really mean much of anything uh, in, in terms of the validity of the claim that the, uh, that whatever education intervention it is, the, the claim that this is going to be effective for students. Okay, that's terrific. I think we'll come back to that. Doug, let's start with you in, in Practice Perfect. There's a, this sort of beautiful little a parallel or recursive story of your own uh, professional development trainings and kind of what you learned from that. Can we use that as a way to segue into your material? Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, uh, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll just start by taking part of the question that you asked Dan, which is what does our work have in common? And, and my, my word for it might be pragmatism. You know, first of all, I love Dan's, Dan's books and his blog and uh, so much of what he writes, but he, both of his, his books, you know, when can you trust the experts and why don't students like school, start with a question. <laughs> which is a question that people struggle with every day. Uh, and I think that that's sort of where Practice Perfect and Teach Like a Champion before it also started for me, which was a, a question about the real world that uh, myself and the people that I work with and the teachers that I know just really needed to solve. And so Teach Like a, a, teach like a Champion, you know, the question was, how do we win? <laughs> how do you be more successful in the face of adversity? And it was fascinating when we studied uh, Know, great teachers uh, who had positive outlier results. We learned so much. It was incredibly humbling to stand in the back of those teachers' classrooms and learn from them. And I think that we thought we had a gold mine, a killer application after we were able to sort of describe some of the things that they did. And we would do these workshops where we would show people video from the inside of great classrooms and say, aha, see, isn't it incredible? And we'd talk about it and analyze it, and people would be really excited. And they would leave the workshop saying, "Now, you know, now I get it. I know more. I learned more than I did in you know two years of graduate school watching these great teachers." But then we check in with them six months later, and they would say, "To be honest, I'm struggling with these ideas into practice. My classroom does not look like what I want it to look like." And we realized that um, that knowing what you want to do uh, is a long way from being able to do it, and that uh, you know teaching is a really complex endeavor. Uh, and it's, uh, and one thing that people don't necessarily think about in teaching is that it's, it's a performance profession. And uh, if you if you teach, and you, have a, you know that if you have a great lesson on Tuesday, uh, you teach a similar lesson on Wednesday, and your great lesson on Tuesday guarantees you nothing about Wednesday. And if you're crashing on Thursday morning, and your lesson, you know, all the kids are looking at you funny when you ask the question, um, you can't hit pause and call someone and say, well, what do you do when you ask a question and no one seems to understand what it means? And I think what we realized in doing our workshops, which we did live in front of teachers, so we felt a certain, a certain pressure to teach well, uh, was that uh, every other performance profession, which we're aware, prepares for the game by practicing, you know, by breaking things down into drills and isolating things that they want to get better at, how they ask their questions and practicing them before they go into the game, and then uh, going in and being, being ready through rehearsal. And that, uh, not only did the teaching profession not do that, but more importantly for us, we didn't do that. So uh, this is sort of a description of our journey to rework our teaching workshops around the idea of practice, having people actually uh, try and learn skills by doing them and not just reflecting on them. And uh, and you know we have a we have a ton to learn, and we <laughs> we lead the league in mistakes. But I think the difference between our workshops and how they how they affect people now after practice perfect 
and when we started after Two Second Champion, it's just it's just night and day. Uh, and uh, so so I guess that's the the background for where practice perfect comes from. Well, and and the lessons that you learned, like the lesson of um, practicing, let's see, um, practicing success, not failure. I mean, that was when you actually learned in your own practice. I'm I'm actually sitting in the room where I learned where I learned that lesson. Uh, you know, we we brought in a group of teachers to try practicing, and we decided some that we were going to practice 100%. And so we set up a little laboratory where we all played the role of students, and the teacher had to come in, and she had to correct us when we were off task. And uh, and so she started teaching, and uh, we started to throw behaviors at her, and they were there were just too many, and they were too complex, and they weren't coordinated. And, and of course, she struggled, and uh, she was unable to teach her lesson. And, um, you know, we all thought it was sort of funny, ha, 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 wasn't it just like a really difficult group of kids in the classroom until Katie, one of my, uh, my co-authors on the book, said, you know, what just happened there was she practiced failing. And so she got better at failing. She got better at feeling that sense of loss of control in, from, in front of the classroom and not being able to master the environment and losing track of your lesson plan and all the things, all the terrible things that happen to you when you lose control of the behavior, behavioral environment of the classroom. And we realized that if we were going to ask her to put herself on the line and practice in front of the rest of us, that we needed to start um, start making her successful uh, by, say, for example, controlling what off-task behavior she faced and when and how often, and then gradually, and may I say this comes directly from Dan Willingham's work, gradually adding complexity in manageable doses, uh, so then we would make, you know, the behaviors might get a little bit more frequent, or it might be, you know, there might be some variability in which behaviors happened, and they might not be totally predictable. Uh, and then she wouldn't know which student was going to demonstrate the behavior. So we would add layers of complexity uh, to the cognitive work that she's doing so that she practiced being successful with a moderate challenge and got better uh, faster and faster. And that was, you know, that was one of our big breakthroughs. So uh, encoding success is really important. I notice this all the time uh, in the practice that I see both in the classroom uh, and among teachers and outside the classroom, my kids are soccer players, for example, how often in practice people practice failing and therefore get better at failing. Uh, and so, you know, that was one of our big lessons. Uh, and maybe another one was, um, this comes from my, my uh, personal experience in this as a husband. My, my wife has compliance problems with her husband, so I learned a lot from the way that she tries to address that situation. But um, I practice, I take feedback really well. So my wife will tell me, for example, that I need to make sure my laundry goes in the laundry basket. And I will look at her very sincerely and nod my head and sometimes, you know, uh, even repeat back her instructions to me. And then the next day I'll, I'll fail to make it into the laundry basket again. And we realized that um, when I do that, I just get better at ignoring feedback. And what we realized was most of the time in schools when people get feedback, they practice ignoring it. They look sincerely at the person giving them feedback and they nod and they say yes and sometimes they say, jot it down, but they don't actually use the feedback and they don't practice using it right away. So uh, we went from just giving feedback in our workshops to asking people to try it uh, right away with practice. So if my wife took that advice, for example, she hasn't, she hasn't read this chapter in the book yet, by the way, so I'm safe for now. Um, she would uh, actually hand me a pile of laundry and say, now let me see you, <laughs> show me that you can put it in the basket and then I would get better at employing her feedback. And, uh, and the learning curve would steepen uh, in the Lamont household.
Uh, but like I said, I, I, she hasn't gotten that far in the book yet, so I'm sitting. <laughs> Dan, Douglas, I, I would like to follow up with a question, Steve, if I could. Yeah, can I, can I follow up with a question for Doug? Um, for, uh, first, a comment. I'm, I'm probably glad my wife and kids aren't <laughs> listening right now, but uh, I wanted to get on the question of um, on failure. So um, you, we, we don't want people to practice failure. In your way of thinking, um, does failure uh, have a useful yeah. function? I'm so glad you asked that because, because it absolutely does. I think that there's a, there's a strange dynamic, which is you can't learn if you're afraid to fail. Uh, and to really learn something, you have, you have, you know, teachers and students both have to em embrace the normalcy of falling down and getting back up and learning. What we want to do is make failure a manageable process. We want to we um, control it. We need to know that it's going to happen, but it needs to happen in a manageable way as opposed to a way where uh, we ask people to do things that are so uh, um, that are outside outside their range of possible learning. Where they so are right One then, example yeah. I might give is you know, um, I was teaching my son to hit a baseball, and I was throwing him pitches uh, in the backyard. He got pretty good at hitting my and hitting my pitches, so I took him to a batting cage, and uh, I went too far too fast. And there was a really slow batting cage, but he wanted to try the batting cage with the really fast pitches. So I put him in there, and you know, locked a locked a hard <laughs> locked a helmet on his head, and um, and the ball was coming way too fast for him to ever hope to hit. And so, uh, you know, he was getting zero out of ten of them, uh, and introducing random variations to his swing to try and catch up with the ball that he really wasn't capable of catching up with. And so he wasn't. This wasn't a productive learning process. It was a, it was a random thing. It was actually introducing things that he then continued to replicate in the backyard when I was going slow to him again because there was no rationality to his his approach. And a more logical approach would have been for me to put him in a batting cage where, let's say, he was going to hit six out of ten. And then you know Dan could probably tell you what the right number is much better than me. You know, uh, uh, my work is based on experience, and his is based on real Not research. Really. But you know, six out of ten, seven out of ten. Then I think the the, the failure, the, the failure is important there, but it's strategic failure, and it's failure where the uh, strategies that he and I undertake together to figure out how to hit one of those balls are are rational and correct decisions are likely to be rewarded. Right. So in in standard education parlance, we would. You and I would probably call the zone of proximal development or something that that uh, that would be a useful construct here, right? I, I I totally agree with this, and I'll add one other one other bit to it. The reason I thought about it was that when we think of, when the psychologist thinks about not failing, I think about uh, behaviorist um, principles from the four forties and uh, and surrounding decades that emphasis errorless learning. That the best way to learn is without error. Um, and today we would say no, probably not. I mean, you really, as, as you just well articulated, you uh, failure. You need to re your reach to exceed your grasp sometimes, and that means you're going to fail. And the other thing that I, um, uh, I hope you'll comment on, Doug, uh, that I've started to think is really important is that uh, we as educators need not to be afraid to tell kids they're failing. And to, to sort of make failure normal, to, to make it uh, understood that this is part of the learning process and it's just no big deal. Um, I was at a school a couple of months ago and uh, I overheard a couple of teachers talking about how they 
let a child know that he got an answer wrong um, without sort of really letting, confronting the child with the fact that the answer was wrong. And so they say, well, I'll just sort of say nothing, and then later on I'll, like, mention the, the missing piece of knowledge in another context so that the child is exposed to it. And it, it seemed to me it was sending a very clear implicit message that this third grader was going to pick up on, that failure is horrible. And, like, if I fail, it, we can't even speak of it. You know, it's just so terrible. And it, it seems very, very destructive to me. So, Doug, I don't know if you want to comment on that. I would just agree with that. I think that's really uh, perfectly said, which is, ironically, to truly normalize failure and make it uh, not just threatless, but... Uh, one of the primary ways that we learn how to learn to call it that, and call it that in a comfortable way, in a way that's, uh, that acknowledges its positivity, like, you know, uh, we got that one wrong, but I know that we're going to get what, you know, but I bet if we work at it, we'll get the next one right. You know, that's really a long-term message that we're trying to communicate, which is uh, we know we're going to get a lot wrong, and we're not afraid of that. In fact, uh, you know, this all kind of ties into Carol Dweck's research about, uh, about risk tolerance and a, uh, and a learning model and, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm having a brain freeze at the moment, but, you know, but kids who are, who are, uh, who embrace risk and, uh, and, uh, you know, I just think that underscores so much what happens in the classroom and we do tacitly without really send kids a message that, like, you got it wrong and that's a terrible thing. Uh, really through our, our own feeling, fear of saying, well, let's try another one and we'll see if we can get this one right. So, Doug, do you make explicit this kind of parallel between the professional development, the teacher's uh, use in the classroom, and then kind of the connection with student practice? Is that kind of explicit in the work? Well, it's interesting. We don't talk explicitly about student practice and practice perfect, but we're, um, we're now planning our workshops uh, that we offer on practice perfect, and the last section is about applying it to student learning, and in fact, uh, and the reason for that is because, as with everything else that I've learned, uh, I've learned it through uh, making a mistake, not realizing it myself, and had teachers call the obvious connection to my attention and say, ah. But what was really interesting for me about your book was thinking about it applying, to, applying it to student learning and me thinking, wow, it's really embarrassing that I didn't have a chapter on <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Dan, uh, Doug is a best-selling author. He's influenced thousands of teachers. Uh, why does that phrase evoke a certain set of emotions? Uh, what, sorry, which phrase? What do you, sorry? My, my phrasing of Dan being, uh, Doug being a best-selling author who's influenced thousands of teachers. Uh, I'm not sure I know where you're going with this, Steve. Uh, you mean what, what, what emotions does it uh, engender in me? that Doug is a, a best-selling author? Well, I wanted to give you a chance to kind of talk a little bit about the ways in which we are sort of wired for influence, right? So if I call, and you mentioned it previously, right? So gotcha. if I call him gotcha. a best-selling author who's, who's influenced thousands of educators, why is it that that makes a difference for me? Gotcha. I'm sorry I'm so dense. Uh, the, the truth is I finally figured out how to like see what was going on in the chat room and so I was like a little bit, uh, you know, I was trying to multitask and as I was, uh, before multitasking is, is frequently a catastrophe, especially at my age. So, um, yeah, so I mean I think, the, I think we look to authority 
most readily. We're always influenced by authority, but we're most susceptible to authority um, when we, we don't have too many other cues to go by. Um, so, for example, I'm, I'm very ready to yield to my physician's authority in medical matters uh, because I, I'm in no position to evaluate uh, anything that, uh, you know, or very little of, of what's going on in my own medical condition, right? I have only the scarcest knowledge and I'm not that resourceful in learning about it. Um, so when we hear that Doug Lamov is a, is a best-selling author who's influenced thousands of teachers, uh, we're, we're sort of, you know, going with the crowd, right? We say, well, there's, you know, he's, he's influenced a lot of people that, uh, you know, the, the teachers are not dummies, and if there are thousands of people who have been influenced by him, then he's sort of been vetted. Um, in one sense, this, this makes perfect sense to do this. Uh, and again, we, we sort of yield to authority all the time. I mentioned my physician. I yield to the authority of, uh, of my architect when uh, having an addition put on my house. I yield to authority uh, when an electrician comes to fix something in my house. And it makes perfect sense there. Um, but it, it makes less sense in education. Uh, one of the reasons is that in the case of medicine or architecture or um, uh, an electrician, there's, been a, there's a responsible body that has done the vetting for me. So there, this person really is a bona fide expert. And they're, you know, in the case of my physician, he's been certified by the Board of Medicine of the state of Virginia. And not that I have a lot of detail on what that means, but I don't have much reason to think probably that. probably scarce if we found out what it meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd rather not think about it. It's worked out for me so far, right? Um, in, the, in the case of education, right, there's, there's absolutely, uh, there's, no, there's no vetting body at all. It's sort of up to me to judge the criteria. And, and uh, the criteria for what constitutes an authority in education is very much up for grabs. And so what you see is um, uh, people out in the marketplace sort of grabbing the earmarks of authority um, without really uh, necessarily having a whole lot of knowledge. I think there are other differences between education and, and um, those other fields I mentioned where it sort of makes more sense to yield to authority. But um, that's, I, that's, I think, what's going on when, when I hear Doug Lamov is you know, a famous guy and has influenced lots of teachers. Uh, that, that's a reason I'm, I'm likely to be influenced by that. It's one of many uh, um, ways in which we are influenced that you describe in the book. And it leads me to ask sort of a similar student driven question or student-related question, right? because obviously teachers are not the only ones who are influenced. Students are growing up in a world in which they face sort of similar influences around um, authority and, and information. And so uh, I, when you mentioned the doctor or the architect, you mentioned that in the book toward the end, and I, th I had the same thought, which was, in education, at what point do we start to transfer this understanding of critical evaluation to the students. Because clearly in medicine, there's a focus on um, treating symptoms, right? So it's uh, you know the whole question of kind of taking care of your own health. Uh, at what point do we start thinking about having the students become aware of the same, the importance of these same patterns for directing their own learning? Uh, yeah, I think that um, we need to be thinking about it very, very early but we need to be sequencing it in a way that's sensible. So I don't think we want to say, well, you know, look, 
children, you know, small children, just they can't think critically. There's there's really no point. That that's a, you know, let's let's wait until they're in fifth grade or you know who knows who knows what decision you would come to. Um, I think it makes more sense to um, uh, so figure out what the what the target is, where you want children to be by grade 12 or something like that, and work backwards from there with the expectation that critical thinking is is going to be starting in preschool. I mean, you're you're there's no reason uh, not to encourage children to uh, have a questioning attitude uh, to uh, and to encourage curiosity as soon as schooling begins, as far as I'm concerned. Doug, a number of your lessons are counterintuitive, and when um, I'm kind of a fan of the, Dan will probably chastise me for this, but I'm a fan of kind of the pop psychology books, uh, like I read Dan Ariely's work. And that's one a, of the that's, things that's fantastic work, by the way. Well, I really enjoy it. But yeah. one of the things that that kind of comes to me from Dan's work, Doug, is this idea that once you begin to recognize sort of the ways in which we may uh, uh, we may not respond accurately right off the bat. It, it uh, in some ways decreases the effect. So in your book, you, you discuss a number of ways of thinking about practice that are counterintuitive. Do you get to a place where you, there is an, an effect that shifts your ability to, to think more carefully about things as you go through this kind of work? Um, can I take a page from Dan's playbook and just ask for uh, a <laughs> I'm not doing a good job, obviously. Okay, so <laughs> from Dan Ariely's work, I, I'm a very let me call this an <laughs> So let me call this an awareness factor. It feels sure. like from 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 Dan Ariely's work, right, that the moment you understand that we're kind of pre-programmed to think that something has value because it has a high price, it kind of frees you from that, right? So do you find that teachers, as they become aware of these effects, as they become aware of the degree to which some of these things are counterintuitive, that it begins to liberate them uh, in, a, in a broader way? Yeah, in other words, are you free now to, to, um, to think <laughs> for, your, you know, for yourself or to, uh, um, to reject, to uh, be an autonomous thinker and reject, you know, whatever, whatever ideological hegemony it is that, uh, that insists that there's only one way to do that. Um, I hope so. Uh, you know, you asked, uh, you know, one thing that teachers say to me all the time is, you know, I learned that I was never supposed to do popcorn reading uh, in, uh, in school. I learned that in graduate school. And what they often describe by popcorn reading is having students read aloud, uh, you know, uh, one by one in order around the classroom. Uh, and I just, this is hard for me to believe that, that uh, under all circumstances, we think that students should not be reading aloud in classrooms. Uh, you know, uh, reading aloud to me is not only an incredibly powerful tool for students, but, uh, uh, and for, you know, I read aloud constantly with my own children. Uh, uh, but it's a beautiful, it's just a beautiful way to engage a text. Uh, and so one of the things we talk about in our workshops is, well, let's throw out the binary of like reading aloud is always good, reading aloud is always bad, and talk about what the benefits of students reading aloud versus students reading silently versus an adult reading to students are, and, uh, and how we can leverage, in what situations we want to leverage the benefits and how we can mitigate the downsides. And let's look at the way that some clever teachers have 
uh, have gotten the most out of the benefits and limited the downsides. And I hope that that frees teachers to do one of the things that I think that they do best at least acknowledge, which is teachers are incredible problem solvers. I mean, it's hard for me to think of a job where people face more, <laughs> uh, more problems and a wider variety of problems in their daily work. And, uh, and many teachers routinely solve them. Uh, and say, okay, I'm going to find a way to make reading deliver the maximum value. And I guess the thing that I I like best about my job uh, is honoring teachers for their solutions. I know that there are people out there who I hope there's some people out there who agree with things that I found in my books, and I'm sure there are people who disagree with plenty of them. But I would say the one thing that anybody could replicate would be let's let's study people who are effective. And, and honor them by learning from them, and then share what they've learned in, in terms of how they uh, how they solve problems. And let's start with you know you asked who the, how you find an expert. Uh, I guess the theme I would like to have in my work is that the teachers are the experts. If we can be if we can have the right way of finding them, uh, that's the expertise we should look for. The, you know, the ground level expertise as opposed to the lab kind of expertise. Uh, and you asked whether students are good judges of teachers. Well, interestingly, they are in two, in two ways. Uh, one, of course, this, is, this may be an unpopular notion, but um, test scores are a way of having students <laughs> validate who the good teachers are uh, through their actions. Uh, I wish the tests were more rigorous and more demanding, but uh, that's certainly what they do, is they aggregate uh, the tacit the opinions of students. But you know, the, the Gates Foundation has found that net data is actually uh, also, uh, student survey data, carefully designed, is actually also incredibly revealing and correlates quite well to uh, to assessment outcomes of, of who teachers are. So, I just find it interesting that when you, you know, when you can reliably find who the good teachers are, and you aggregate lots of data points on the teachers, uh, what they are is incredible problem solvers who often do exactly what you just described. They uh, they throw out the conventional wisdom and they resolve problems. And, uh, and sort of uh, point, point to the path forward. And uh, I, I just love just, you know, seeing something that a teacher does that uh, you're quote not supposed to do, but that's incredibly effective. Hey, Steve, I'd, I'd, I'd like to uh, build a little bit on what Doug just said, if I could. Um, getting back to the, this, this main point that we started with, and you mentioned Dan Ariely's work, that when that there are these sort of uh, traps that we all fall into that are just part of human cognition, errors that um, in, in other moments we recognize as errors. Um, I, and, and you asked whether, whether it's, uh, specifying those for people um, makes them less likely to, to make those errors. And I, I talk about a lot of this in When Can You Trust the Experts. This is a lot of the reason why the scientific method is so important. Is a lot, you, you could say the main point of the scientific method is to minimize the possibility that you're going to fool yourself. It's this set of procedures to um, sort of systematize observation so you're less likely to fall into those traps. But I think the, 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 it's definitely good to point these traps out to people, even if they're not going to be doing uh, formal scientific analysis. I think the extent to which being aware of the, the problem frees you from the problem varies depending on what the problem is. So one um, uh, mental uh, trap that people fall into is called the sunk cost fallacy. 
Um, and this is where uh, once you've committed money or resources to something, you, you sort of keep throwing uh, good money after bad. A uh, you know, classic example would be you're at a movie, you think the movie is terrible, and you say, well, I've got to sit through it to get my money's worth. Well, your money's gone, and sitting through a terrible movie is not going to bring your money back. And it's not really, you know, you could go out to a bar or something and have fun instead of sitting through that terrible movie. Okay, well, the sunk cost fallacy, in my experience, when you point that out to people, they're very good at spotting it later, and they're really good at avoiding it. Um, and I think part of the reason is that you're uh, uh, the recognizing the fallacy sort of frees you to do something that you kind of want to do anyway. You want to walk out of the movie, and this gives you a justification. Contrast that with the confirmation bias, which is a very broad um, uh, uh, bias to uh, maintain beliefs that you already hold. And so you'll do things like twist evidence, new evidence that you hear about to make it consistent with what you already believe. Or your memory will become selective so that you'll remember instances that are consistent with your belief uh, and you'll forget ones that aren't. Confirmation bias, even once you know it, it's really hard to spot because you never know, am I Am I subject to, you know, am I thinking this am I, because it's really right, or is this just an instance of the confirmation bias? And it's, it's really hard to tell. And in contrast with the sunk cost, recognizing this bias in yourself doesn't free you to do what you wanted anyway. You want to believe that what you already believe is true, and the confirmation bias is whispering in your ear, yeah, but you might, your, your cognition might be twisted uh, just so that uh, you'll, you'll confirm your already existing beliefs. So I think it's, it's hard, getting, sort of circling back to your initial question, I think it's, it's hard to generalize about whether being aware of these mental traps um, is always going to make us better. I don't, in avoiding them, I, I, I think it's very low risk to tell people that I don't think it's going to make them any worse. So I definitely think it's a good idea. But I think the extent to which it works probably varies with, um, with the particular mental trap that you're dealing with. You know, I experienced... Probably also to go ahead, Doug. Which, I think that's probably also the good to which people uh, self-censor. When you started talking about the sunk cost fallacy, Dan, I started thinking about um, ideological costs or the sunk cost fallacy when it comes to, you know, beliefs about things, which is the longer you believe in something or use something in your classroom, say, or followed up, you know, uh, an idea about teaching, the harder it is to change because you've made a, you've, uh, you've made a psychological and ideological investment in it, right? very hard to say. I've been teaching this way for six years, and now, and now I believe that it's no longer the best way to teach, and I'm going to change that. Uh, or I'm going to experiment with it, or I'm not sure that it's right, and I'm going to open myself up again to trying some, uh, to, to challenging the idea in my own classroom. Um, but I think there are a lot of people in the classroom who have misgivings about the way that they're quote, supposed, to, supposed to teach and calling their attention to the fact that there kind of is a, uh, uh, there are some, uh, some thought traps out there that, uh, you, that if you're aware of them, uh, you can feel more emboldened to say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge that, uh, even if in a, in a small controlled experiment in my own classroom to see what I think. Um, hopefully it does free up, free up some people to, uh, uh, get outside the sunk cost of I've been doing it this way for a long time, so it has to be right. It's hard for me to think about it not being right anymore. 
Yeah, that, that's a that's a great example. I mean, this there, and several things can be at play at once. We would definitely say the cognitive dissonance would be um, at work here as well. And it, it it is very it's very challenging. I mean, you're really asking someone to in in inviting someone to question their practice. You are inviting them to consider the possibility that over the last 10 years, 15 years, whatever it's been. Uh, you know, maybe you haven't been doing this optimally, or you've even been guided by something which you had every reason to think was a good idea, but maybe it wasn't as good an idea as you thought it was. And that, you know, for for people who care deeply about their practice, that's of course that's very, uh, you know, it's asking a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that goes both, you know, for sort of what you do in the classroom, and even then for you know, how you prepare for the classroom. So. Uh, yeah, but it's challenging to go back to practice perfect. It's challenging to tell a teacher who has prepared for his or her work, you know, for years by reflecting on it to say, that's great. But one of the other things you could do to really prepare for your work would be to, be to practice. Uh, and so let's sit down and you ask me your questions from your lesson plan and I'll pretend to be your students and I'll try and answer them wrong and you react. Uh, but getting them to uh, feel comfortable and safe in that dynamic is a big part of what uh, what has to happen for practice to be effective, in, you know, for an organization of, of teachers or any other folks who uh, who want to use it effectively. So, um, you know, that's sort of one of the last chapters of Practice Perfect is just about building what we call a culture of practice, uh, which is making it feel safe to do something risky in an organization or individually, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I'll jump back in. So, uh, I love the discussion. Um, Dan, uh, uh, even though I knew about the fallacy of the golden ratio, uh, and there were pictures on the pages, so it's not as though you wrote three pages about it, but there was enough material that you actually kind of got me drawn in, <laughs> and I knew it, right? And I was like, well, gosh, you know, maybe I've been thinking wrong about this because he keeps going on about it. But you, in the book, you give a list of steps, the shortcut steps for looking at purported research or conclusions about education. Can you kind of give us a brief understanding of how you would use those? And, and Terry in the chat keeps bringing up uh, some questions. And, and he, I think, wants to know specifically about how would you look at something like the common core through the lens of your short, shortcut steps? So the, the the first shortcut is to uh, what uh, I, I got slightly cutesy. I called it strip it and flip it. And the idea there is to uh, that when someone is uh, arguing that you ought to take up some sort of an educational intervention, they're really arguing that you ought to change something. And so the idea is to get as clear as you can about what the change actually is, what the promised outcome is, and the probability that you're actually going to see the outcome if you undertake the change. And the idea here is to get a lot of uh, emotional appeals uh, out of the way and, uh, and indeed to, to make sure that you're actually really clear on, on what's, being, uh, what's being claimed. The second step is, uh, I called it trace it, which is really getting at um, who, who came up with this claim. And I ended up saying, uh, this is very unimportant information. It's not reliable enough. And we touched on this earlier, um, that the fact that someone seems to be an authority in education is not a very reliable guide to uh, whether or not the idea likely has merit. 
The third step uh, is analyze it. And I go into some detail in the book about how to use your own experience to evaluate an idea. This is, of course, incredibly dangerous in a way uh, because so much of the book is about the fact that you can't trust your own experience. We're subject to these, uh, these fallacies of thought. And so I try to provide some guidelines for when you can trust. But on the other hand, it's crazy. I mean, you can't throw out, you know, just pretend that you've never had any experience and that it's, uh, uh, or that it's uh, completely unreliable. Uh, so I try to provide some guidelines for when and how to do that. And then at the back end of that chapter, I also, uh, at the very end, if things still sort of look useful to you uh, uh, on this educational intervention that you're contemplating, um, I suggest how to approach the research literature in a way that is not too onerous uh, and still might prove useful. And then the final step is to actually uh, act like a practicing scientist yourself. If you decide you're uh, go going to try this new uh, uh, piece of software or uh, experiment with a new curriculum if you're in a position to decide on curriculum or a teaching method or whatever it is, to uh, act like a scientist in that you write down on a piece of paper what you expect to happen, how you're going to know it's happening, when you expect it to happen, and some thoughts on what you'll do if you do or don't see it happening at that point. Um, this is a piece that I find uh, missing most of the time from educational interventions. And uh, I, I, moving on to the common core question, um, I would not claim to be an expert on, on the common core, but it is a question I would raise. And maybe someone's addressed it and I don't know about it. Um, but the, the question is, what exactly are we expecting the common core standards to do? How will we know that they're doing them? And what's our plan B? So what's our exit strategy? If you know, if we're expecting NAEP scores will go up by 15% within the next five years, if five years pass and NAEP scores are flat, uh, does that mean we're going to abandon Common Core? Does that mean we're going to adjust in some way? Um, and what would, what would be the choice point for that decision? So this is something I recommend uh, in the book that, that people do at a smaller scale. And again, this is very much to sort of rescue yourself from things like the confirmation bias. Uh, so that you have a written record of what you thought was going to happen and how you uh, were going to assess whether or not it was actually happening so that uh, you can look at whatever it was that you tried in a more dispassionate light when the time comes. So we talked about it at the beginning, and I wanted to come, come back a little bit to this question of motivation or you know, even motives that are um, you know, not entirely pure. And, and we live in an education world that has a fair amount of money that flows through it. And, um, and Dan, I'm particularly interested in the degree to which uh, influencing tools get consciously used in order for an outcome that's different than you think the outcome should be. When you look at the commercial involvement in public education, does it seem as though um, this is something particularly to be aware of? I think it is. I mean, I think that um, in, uh, I, I'm sometimes, frankly, surprised that um, people have expectations that are any different uh, than that. Uh, take publishing companies, for example. Um, you know, I expect absolutely nothing uh, by way of altruism on the part of publishing companies. I mean, if publishing companies can sell 
terrible products at, 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 a, at a high price, why, why wouldn't they? I mean, they, they are answerable to shareholders. They're supposed to turn a profit. And I think that if we have any expectations other than that, uh, then we're we're sort of naive. I mean, we we have to uh, we have to move the levers that we have available to us. But I think we're uh, maybe maybe this attitude would be insufferably cynical to some people. But you know, cynics always think they're just being realistic. And I guess that's that's the way I feel about that statement. I just feel like that's that's the state of the world. Yeah. And so likewise, when you know you go on a website and they're offering you a reading program for two hundred fifty dollars and there's a money back guarantee. I mean, you know, they're they're trying to make a dollar. They're not they're not uh, they're not in business uh, for altruistic reasons. Doesn't mean that there aren't altruistic agents in in education. There's certain uh, you know in, in in the field of education generally. There certainly are, um, uh, but they're they're generally not running websites with money back guarantees. Doug, did you want to comment at all? Uh, no, it sounds like a sector of the uh, <clears throat> a sector of the education field that Dan probably knows best. So I did want to come back, Doug, to um, to a statement you make in your book, sort of about the the ironic behavior of great teachers that they they they're focused on really detailed things and. You know, you talk about the socks first mentality of uh, John Wooden. Do you want to talk at all about that, um, that the sort of larger picture of detail and end results? Sure. I've been thinking about this a lot because I think there's a strange correlation between uh, a focus on granular level decision making in the classroom and a focus on the bigger, more important things, if that makes sense. So if you show me a teacher who's, uh, who is reading Animal Farm with her students, her questions are impeccably raw and capture the, or get students to the richness and depth of that text. Um, in my mind, you know, uh, she's more likely to be someone who is equally intentional about the directions that she gives the students for how they come into the classroom today. Uh, and I think that, you know, I had a really interesting experience this year working with an organization uh, that for now I'll, I'll leave on name, but that trains uh, thousands of teachers uh, across the country to go into, uh, go into school districts. Uh, and they track them with, with data. And um, they scored, so they, they redid their summer program last year around the notion of and often practice on pretty mundane behavioral stuff, like what to do from uh, from uh, from teach like a champion, on the notion that uh, one of the things that kept really smart people who knew their science or knew their math or knew their literature out of being successful in the classroom is they didn't always know how to get kids to sit down and, and want to learn it. Uh, and so they scored the, the teachers over the course of the summer and, uh, and, a, and a variety of things, uh, but then track them over the course of the year on evaluations by, uh, by senior teacher observers and by the principal and, uh, and met data and that kind of thing. And at the end of the year, what they found was there was, a, there was uh, the strongest correlation that they'd seen of anything that they'd done in the summer between academic, out, you know, academic outcomes and, um, or let's say actually, uh, this, so this is not corroborated by testing yet, but let's say uh, observation of quality of the classroom in terms of learning and the teachers 
ability to learn to sort of give directions uh, in a practice setting over the summer. And what that says to me is that people who were who over the summer, when they're training to go into classrooms, most of them were career changers, who were intentional about learning this new small part of the craft or were willing to say, okay, I'll take a few hours and think about how I give my directions to students so that they're a little bit clearer and students feel a little bit more accountable and I'll be a little bit more efficient and I'll squeeze out a little bit more time to talk about animal farm. The people who are willing to think of the profession in that way has built up from mastery of a, you know, a series of elements of craft. We're more successful on the academic side too in the long run because they were willing to think about uh, the book discussion in a similar way. And the people who were, you know, more resistant to that, and this isn't really what teaching is about, teaching is about a uh, sense of belief between me and my students and it's something I can never capture and never describe, but, but those people, my guess is, um, you know, I'm trying to explain the data, were also similarly reluctant to sort of try and refine and hone the craft of asking questions or giving writing assignments and things like that. And so uh, I do think that there's a strange correlation between intentionality about seemingly little things and uh, on the sort of behavioral cultural side and intentionality about the big questions that we face in the classroom. And, uh, you know, I, I think of teaching as a craft. Uh, in the old world, in the sense of, you know, you learn it piece by piece by doing it over years uh, and getting a little tiny bit better every day and every time you create a joint in a piece of furniture, you recognize a slightly better way to do it and you, uh, and you carry that with you. And uh, I think the people who uh, that's certainly, certainly the sort of you know, when when I uh, when I teach now it's usually running a workshop, but, uh, but I find that the most interesting and exciting way to approach my workshops. And I do think that there is a correlation between uh, between people who approach uh, who approach the, the profession that way and the ultimate success, which is uh, essentially describing someone who wants to be a constant learner and who is the humbleness. To the humility to you know address uh, you know focus their learning modality on granular ground level decisions that we all face every day in the classroom. Steve, can I follow up with a quick question for Doug? I'm ready. Oh, <laughs> I don't know where Steve went. No, no, no. I, I'm um, learning to be quiet so after Doug finishes. Okay, uh, so Doug, you used the you used the term willing uh, that wh whether or not a teacher was willing to sort of engage in that work, and you, yeah. and you used it several times. So I'm, I I get that um, that that's that's quite intentional on your part. So your interpretation seems to be that that doing this maybe uh, entails some sort of threat to the teacher that um, that this is that this is tough work. Because my yeah. first guess would have been that this is, uh, it's not willingness, it's more a habit of mind that, oh, yeah, that maybe grows out of thinking about teaching, sort of, I, I thought the way you described it was beautiful as craft, that it's sort of this accumulation of these small-grained um, uh, ideas about how to usefully uh, uh, deal with situations that come up time and time again. So d would you say a word or two about your view on this idea of willingness to 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 uh, engage in that work? Uh, yeah, what word did you, you replaced willingness with a different word. Uh, tell me what it was again. And it was, I didn't really have a word for, uh, per se, but I, I thought of it as more, it could just be a habit of mind, that it's, it's something that uh, if you view teaching differently, 
you don't yeah. view um, th this as a way of improving your craft. Yeah, I, I think habit of mind is a better description. I think maybe I use the word um, willing to because to me it implies just hard work. And hard work is always a disincentive towards hard work. Or, you know, it would be easier not, you know, to tell myself that I wasn't really going to fully engage in uh, spending a couple of hours thinking about how I how I ask my students to do things and what exactly the phrase I use is and what the difference is between saying, can anybody tell me and who can tell me? Uh, and that, you know, mental energy is, uh, <laughs> mental energy focused intently on a, on a task. It's tiring. Uh, yeah. So, of course, like, you know, uh, of course we all resist that to some degree. So maybe willing was just uh, uh, maybe a proxy for willing and able to focus, uh, to make the determination to focus uh, intentionally on singular decisions in the classroom. Uh, to build habits of mind, I guess you have to you have to make a conscious decision that you want to build those habits within yourself. And, and also, it, it requires a recognition that those very fine-grained behaviors uh, uh, are open to that sort of analysis, right? So, I mean, my, my wife's a teacher, and, and she was telling me about someone who she was mentoring who uh, would have been surprised to learn that certain types, I mean, a lot of times she just thought, like, well, that's just sort of how kids are, you know, when... Uh, when when you ask ask them a particular type of question, I want to get into too much detail here. You know, they're all going to clamor and they're all going to kind of raise hell, and that's that's just the way this age group is. Um, and so it it, uh, it wasn't that she was unwilling to work; it was that it didn't occur to her that this was a type of work that would yield results. Yeah, that's fascinating. It reminds me of, um, of you know, uh, Dave Levin often starts uh, the he's the founder of Kit uh, often starts his teacher workshops by giving people a mirror and he says to them, I'm giving you a mirror because the classroom is a mirror of the decisions you make and the actions that you take as a teacher. And uh, you know there are a lot of things, there are a lot of challenges in there that are really hard to take on and sometimes it seems like we can't affect them. But only when you embrace that your classroom is a mirror of, of your actions and that there is a solution that you will find it, uh, can you really uh, Get yourself to the point of excellence, where you uh, where you believe that you own it and that you can find a solution if you search uh, if you search long enough for it and you search hard enough for it and intently enough, and that there is no way that kids you know kids do that kids automatically respond that way. Kids re kids respond in a way that uh, uh, reflects the expectations around them, uh, and so it's our job to face the, to shape those ex those expectations as much as we can. So I think we're at the end. The books are Practice Perfect, 42 Rules for Getting Better at Getting Better by Doug Lamoth, and When Can You Trust the Experts? How to Tell Good Science from Bad in Education. Thanks, Doug and Dan. Really a pleasure to spend some time with both of you. Thanks to both of you. I had a great time. Thanks for having me with you. Thanks a lot. Coming up uh, on the 6th of June, Ben Rhymes on Virtual Book Clubs than Larry Ferlazzo on self-driven learning and lots more. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. Bye now.